makes us all so insecure and vulnerable as it is. It's just an innately vulnerable experience that's just like rife for feeling bad about yourself or feeling unsure about your choices. We're just like onslaughted with so many people, most of them strangers, that Mm -hmm. we're just constantly consuming other people's renditions of motherhood. And it's dizzying in terms of like feeling comfortable and solid with your own decisions. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Sarah Peterson is a writer based in New Hampshire. Her first book, Momfluenced, examines the performance of motherhood through the multi-layered phenomenon of mommy influencer culture, what this reveals about the texture of modern motherhood, and what we might learn from it. Momfluenced will be coming out in 2023 with Beacon Press. Today, we're talking about momfluencers, as well as how Sarah became the writer and the mother that she is today. Obviously, right now, a lot of your work is about motherhood. You haven't always been a mother. So tell me, where did this come from? If you could just kind of even like go back to like what sort of a writer Sarah was and what dreams you had and what that looked like. My first career aspiration was actually to be an actor. I was just that kid in elementary school and high school that was like the star of the show and all the school plays and just loved that. And so just was like, people tell me I'm good at this. I feel comfortable doing this. I'm going to go to school for this. So Hmm. majored in theater studies at Emerson College. After graduation, I acted for three years and I was in New York and just doing the whole auditioning, acting thing, which really meant like dog walking. Actually, I was a dog runner for a company called Running Paws. You take the dogs for a run versus a walk, but whatever. (laughs) So, oh my God, I still remember I had to like do a fitness test for that job. It was a whole thing. Yeah. So temping, dog running, and like doing- Dog running. Sorry. (laughs) Dog running. I'm stuck on dog running. You should be. You should be stuck on dog running. It was really fun, but I didn't have the determination or- even the desire to hustle the way you need to hustle to succeed. Mm. Maybe I wasn't even that good. Who knows? And I also didn't want to live in New York or LA indefinitely. Mm. I knew I wanted to raise kids in the country somewhere. That's how I grew up. And that was just like a Mm. fantasy that was very forefront for me. So I went back to the drawing board and was like, what am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? I like reading books. So (laughs) I took that super specific ambition And applied to a bunch of graduate schools with the intent of getting my PhD in literature and becoming a professor. So then I did a master's degree in English at UNH, which is how I ended up in New Hampshire. And almost immediately, I was like, yeah, I'm also not going to cut it as an academic because academia is just as cutthroat as acting. And it requires Mm -hmm. just as much. I want to do nothing else but this determination as acting Mm -hmm. did. And I just didn't feel that. But it was great. It really blew open my whole perspective on everything being a cultural construct, 
on the power structures at play in our daily lives and really informed how I see the world. But yeah, let's see. Then after I got my master's in literature, I was like, what do I do with a master's in literature? Nothing. So (laughs) then I got a master's in education with the intent to bring my love of literature to the classroom. And halfway through that, I got pregnant. And once I had my baby, I finished the degree, but was like, now I have a baby. So I'm not going to try to start my teaching career with a newborn. Mm -hmm. But motherhood and my experience with postpartum depression, my existential crisis upon becoming a mother, that is how I started writing creatively in the first place. Mm. Not right away. That didn't come until a few years later. But my experience of early motherhood completely decimated the fantasies of motherhood I had Mm. always cherished. It really made me reconsider how I had planned my whole life around motherhood. Mm. Hmm. Motherhood radicalized me. I called myself a feminist, but I didn't feel that feminist rage and urgency Mm. until I became a mom. Hmm. What was it in your early experiences that created that fissure for you? Like, do you have specific memories where you were like, oh my gosh, this wasn't what I expected? And why did you expect? I'm also curious to unpack what that vision looked like, because obviously in the work that you're doing with momfluencers, there's a lot of performance. And actually, I didn't know you were an actress that you have that in you. And so I was really curious about the performativity of motherhood that you're unpacking too. Part of it is I grew up in a pretty small town surrounded by very traditional nuclear families, lots of moms Mm -hmm. staying home. My own mother stayed home with us. All of my aunts, while they had jobs in various professions at various points during their mothering years, Mm. they also stayed home and did the childcare and domestic labor for many of those years. And so motherhood as a penultimate goal just always seemed like a given. And I Mm. think mostly because I didn't look around and see other models of how to be a woman in the world. Of course, there were friends that had moms that worked nine to fives, of course. But in my immediate inner circle, it was all moms who kind of made motherhood look like it had the potential to fulfill you creatively and fulfill you personally. And I didn't think too hard about this at all. It was just like, yeah, I'm going to be a mom. This -hmm. is what I want. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want a flower garden. It was just part and parcel of the whole thing that I always envisioned for myself. And I think it got complicated when I experienced all the sort of career, for lack of a better word, indecision in my early Mm -hmm. 20s, Mm -hmm. not fully figuring out my vocation really pushed me further. Mm -hmm. It just pushed me more towards mother as a vehicle for self-knowledge, which, Mm. so that was the crux of it. I had a kid and there's no like great self-knowledge that comes with having a child. There's no Mm -hmm. great fulfillment with those early years, especially with your first kid of like pumping milk from your boobs, listening Mm -hmm. to the whir whir of the breast pump, staring Mm -hmm. at the clock, waiting for your partner, if you have a partner to come home and relieve you from the monotony and the drudgery. None of that felt personally fulfilling or creatively Mm -hmm. fulfilling. Of course, I had the 
earth shattering love you feel for your kid, but that's not something that sustains you on an hourly basis. I looked at my life as just a doer of tasks who also Mm. loved this creature that I was taking care of, but all of my creative impulses just felt depleted. No, it's really interesting. You had me thinking because a lot of the people that I've had conversations with so far came to motherhood already with a very specific career foundation. Yeah. And so for you, it sounds like it was very different because you then built that after the fact. For me personally, I was holding my six-week-old editing my manuscript for my novel. I could enjoy those moments because I had that other piece that was like, I'm like holding my boobs. Yeah. <laughs> one was here and one was there. I mean, it kind of felt like that, right? Like it I had that other baby that nourished me and that I nourished too in a different way. And that gave me that identity. So I can imagine for you then, because I could imagine it for myself too, that that would be a really challenging space to be in. And also what I'm really curious about too, and I don't want to lay this on you because this was my take when I look at what you are exploring in your work now of just the idea that motherhood itself is sufficient in terms of, you know, your own identity. I don't really have an opinion on it yet because I want to understand what your take is. Obviously, you've done a ton of work in this space. I'm curious then coming out of those early moments of it sounds like a sort of crisis of self. How did you find your way to where you are now? I'm really, by the way, let me just say, I'm so impressed that I didn't know that you hadn't been a writer prior to becoming a mother and seeing how much you've been able to do in the, I don't want to say niche because that trivializes it, but I think that like the focus that you've had in terms of culture, it seems like you've been doing this a lot longer. I mean, I will say my master's program in literature was a writing program. You're just writing like cultural criticism instead of, I don't know. I mean, I'm still writing cultural criticism. So right. I do feel like right. that gave me a really strong foundation. But um, how did I get there? I got on Zoloft. I found a therapist. I did things like I found mom friends through baby and me yoga. And I started mm-hmm. bitching about motherhood to them. And I got my feelings validated. It was like a blur. Those first, I got pregnant with my second kid when my first baby was one. So really that first year, you're just like Mm -hmm. trying to survive. And then I was pregnant again. After she was born, I like prepared myself fully for the potential for postpartum depression. So I started Zoloft when I was 37 weeks pregnant. I did heavy therapy before her birth. And I didn't experience that crisis of identity with number Mm -hmm. two the way I did with number one. And I think because of that, because I had already figured out that I need something that's just mine, that mm-hmm. is separate from the work of caregiving and domestic mm-hmm. labor, I knew I needed something. I didn't know what. And it started with a friend of a friend knew somebody who writes ad copy. Mm-hmm. She was just like, your emails are funny. You're funny <laughs> in your emails. You should meet with this friend. And I like did this exercise for her to write copy. It was like a kid's clothing brand or something. And it was fun. And I was like, oh, I could totally do this. And then Emily Henderson, do you know Emily Henderson? She's like a huge interior design person, but I found her blog and she was hiring somebody to write blog posts. And I was like, I'll apply. (laughs) I have no experience in interior design whatsoever. I was not (laughs) hired for this position. 
But I had to write an essay as part of the application. And the experience of doing that was also really fun and gratifying. And I basically just started trying to get my stuff published in places that I had no business being published in. I just started pitching. I started applying to like writer's workshops. I knew nothing other than that I enjoyed it and it made me feel alive and it made me feel like I had some place to put all of my anger, frustration, and thoughts about motherhood. And so I just Mm -hmm. blindly kept trying. (laughs) There was no magic formula whatsoever. It's impressive. I'm curious because I'm thinking of you at home with, I don't know, a two-year-old and an infant or a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I'm doing the math. I'm like, how did you do that? That's a lot. Oh, it was definitely when I had a babysitter. By then, my first kid was in twice a week preschool or something. Oh, okay. The only reason, like it was childcare. Kate Bear in her interviews about like how she does it. She's always just like, childcare, bye. That's how anybody (laughs) does it. Unless you're completely burning yourself out and writing after they're asleep or getting up at 4am. There is no other way to do it other than childcare. Yeah. I wanted to like highlight that because I feel like you only see the finished product and you don't see what's actually happening in the day to day. And I think that if more people were more willing to talk about how they actually survive, like how do you pay the bills? How do you live? I know in my first conversation on this podcast with Sarah Shavs, she was talking about, I think she was three months postpartum at the time. And she's like, I'm hustling to try to find freelance work because I'm able to take a long maternity leave from my work as a teacher. And yet they're not going to pay me this entire time, but I'll still get my job back. So I still need to get paid. And so we were talking a lot about how would that change if whether it were childcare that was federally accessible or funding that was federally accessible or whatever that would look like so that you would actually, whether it's not having to do work that then takes away from the other work that you really want to be doing as a creative person, right? And that's not to say that that other work isn't valuable and valid too, but it's just the balance of, especially when I think you're working in a field, and actually I'm curious to hear about this too, like the work that you do Obviously, getting a book published is great. You can make some money from it, but it's not going to like ultimately support a family. And you've, I know, have done a lot of other writing. I assume it's supplemental yeah. income, but it's, it's not. 100%. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. And another thing that I'm glad you pointed out is I only had the wherewithal and mental capacity to think about these things and to have the privilege to be like, what do I want to do with my enjoyment of writing? Mm-hmm. Because my husband made enough to support both of us, because my dad helped us buy our first house. Mm. There were various levels of privilege that enabled me to be where I am today and to ensure that all people have a chance to like fuck Mm. around with like, what do I want to do? And even entertain those thoughts. Yeah, subsidies for childcare, for moms and caregivers, that would go a long way towards evening the playing field. In many of these episodes, we've covered the privilege of moms pursuing creative work who have the resources to do so without working a traditional nine to five out of the home job. If you're a creative parent building an artistic life while also caregiving and working an unrelated nine to five job, we'd love to hear from you and how you're able to find creative moments in the mayhem of your daily life and work. Drop us a line at hello at postpartumproduction.com. Now back to the episode.
I'm really impressed. You were just sending stuff out and feeling like you wanted to write about this subject matter. Where did you go from there? Like, how did you get into this momfluencer culture? Because you've really dug in there from like a cultural critical standpoint. I'm curious how that came about. Once I like started to sort of get my footing in terms of writing about feminism and the intersection of feminism and motherhood, momfluencer culture basically became the elephant in the room. I found myself constantly circling around the image of the ideal mother, like in many of my pieces, if I was writing about like the importance of maternal sleep, the image of the ideal mother is always present in these conversations. Why do we not give postpartum doulas to all new moms so they can get the sleep they need? Because we think the ideal mother is impervious to exhaustion and lives solely for the people she's taking care of. In every piece I wrote, I was bumping up against this image of the ideal mother. And probably when my daughter was, I don't know, a baby or two-ish is when I started following people like Naomi Davis. She was like the first big one. Her blog and her Instagram presence basically just impressed upon me her maternal joy and the apparent delight that she found in motherhood that I just have always struggled to find. Of course, there are moments when, you know, being with your kids is delightful and joyful. Of course, of course, of course. But yeah, my motherhood just doesn't look like hers. It never has. It probably never will. I actually don't know her work. And just for anyone who doesn't know it, what does that look like? How does she present it? And what is it? Yes. So, (laughs) I mean, in terms of like colors, lots of bright (laughs) colors, lots of sunshine, lots of like delightful combinations of pink and red. (laughs) And she was in New York for a long time and had this incredible brownstone in the Upper West Side. She's a brilliant photographer. Her version of motherhood was just like, adventure. Like, here we go. We're putting the twins in the stroller and the three big kids are riding on their scooters down this cobblestone street. And here we go to Paris for like a mommy and me trip. And we're eating all these delicious croissants. And it just looked, it made it look all like a lark essentially. And I'm just like consuming this stuff. I'm pissed that my baby got up early from his nap and I don't have more time to scroll through shit. I'm pissed that I have to make dinner. I'm pissed that I have to clean every day. Like, I just found myself constantly struggling with the realities of domestic Mm -hmm. work and really finding it difficult to be like, Mm -hmm. motherhood is so joyful and fun. Like, a lot of it's not joyful and fun. A lot of it's Mm -hmm. boring, repetitive, and monotonous. Mm Mm-hmm. And so just trying to square my own experience of motherhood against people like hers, it was just, it had me going round and round and round in circles in my Mm -hmm. head. And Mm -hmm. I probably started pitching pieces about it. I pitched several pieces that never landed, but finally Mm -hmm. Harper's Bazaar said yes to one of them. Mm -hmm. The first draft of that piece was like legit 20 pages long. I think it had to be like three (laughs) So it was just, there was so much there. Monfluencer culture just says so much about the values we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, It says so much about race. It says so much about class. It says so much about heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. So it's just a really rich thing to interrogate, to Mm -hmm. learn more about like why motherhood feels so confounding for so many of us, I think. Hmm. Well, I guess though, as you're talking about your original 
impetus. Was it Naomi? Sorry, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My initial thought is just like, how does she pay for that? <laughs> just like you're like, oh, she's going to Paris, and obviously there's a lot that's undergirding her lifestyle and. I think that we all often forget about how we all perform and present on social media. And so when you're only seeing certain things, like I had a friend recently say something to me, we were talking about, I go in and, you know, as I think we all do, I go in and out of like, I'm off, I'm on, I'm off, I'm on, I'm off, yeah, I'm on, which yeah, for you yeah. probably is harder given your <laughs> professional work right now. But she made the point that, for example, so I have three children now, there's a whole story behind that, that if you don't know me, you wouldn't necessarily see if I'm not sharing it on social media, you wouldn't see. You just see that I have three kids. Yeah. And she has one. And she said that I love seeing your kids. I love you. I want to see pictures of your kids. And this is on my private account, mind you. And she said, and yet when I see pictures of your three kids, I can't help but think, should I have another? I don't think I want to have another, but should I? Like this like comparative space that you go into because mm-hmm. you're seeing and because of course I want to post a picture of my kids look cute. So I yeah. post a picture where my kids look cute. Also, I don't often, I seldom can even get all three of them in a photo. So oh. like when I do, it's like a whole thing. Yeah, They're not professional photos. And sometimes, yeah, there's funny moments where like the baby's screaming or whatever, but it still doesn't, you're not hearing the screaming nonstop for three hours. You're seeing this one tiny glimpse of it. And I, that really struck me where I thought, oh, it's so hard. And I know having also suffered from infertility that friends would post photos of their children and it would slay me. And yet they have every right to do that too. So it's just for me hearing her say that anyways, was a really helpful way of checking my own initial responses to Mm -hmm. what's out there in the world. It may not be about that person. It's about something that I'm struggling with. Right. And then unpacking that and saying, okay, well, why do I have this, whether it's personal or obviously everything personal has like a wider resonance too. I'm curious also, I mean, if these momfluencer type accounts are so successful. A, what are the ones that you see that are like the most, like, cause I follow some that are, don't look like that at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause then there's the other side of it, right. Of the, look how messy, look how yeah. <laughs> crazy my kids are that yeah. side of motherhood performed. Is there though, when you really look at like the metrics, I assume that tells us something too. So like, what do you find and what have been like your core takeaways culturally? Most of the most financially lucrative momfluencers are still white, conventionally attractive, <laughs> cishet, non-disabled, usually have some sort of money. Even getting into it, even if you set out to become a pro- professional monetized momfluencer, it really helps to have some generational wealth. So mm-hmm. you can buy this type of camera so you can hire hair and makeup people so you can get like the right lighting these things all give you a leg up that theme has been dominant since mommy bloggers which were sort of like the og momfluencers Mm. um Mm. Hmm. and there's like pretty widespread knowledge in the industry that white creators are still paid more than Mm. creators of color And the Mm -hmm. metrics are really, really hard to find. I spoke Mm -hmm. to several academics who this is all they do. And yeah, Mm -hmm. the metrics are really, really hard to find because Instagram is a private company and they're harvesting our data and they're not just going to like publish it to third party platforms. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So it's, it's messy. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's so interesting, though, because I was just thinking, and I can't even articulate this properly because, again, <laughs> postpartum. But like, I'm thinking about like how culture begets culture. I guess those who are elevated are then the ones that you see more, are then the ones that you aspire to more, are then the ones <laughs> that get paid more, and how to break that. And yet, in your work, did you also speak to those who are like fans of those accounts, if you will, or and what are they? taking from like how does that fill their cups <laughs> yeah i mean and even i like when i think about my early consuming of naomi davis's content i was a fan of her photographs i was a fan mm -hmm. of like the cute clothes she put her kids in like i would click on the links i obviously found her content aspirational mm -hmm. in a way i'm not going to be consuming somebody who's just making me feel bad about myself. And mm -hmm. you're completely right that I'm feeling bad about myself, not because of any individual stranger on the internet, but because of mm -hmm. my own reality. And yeah, people like Momfluencers primarily as shopping destinations. That's a huge part of it. Jeez. If I want to Google like nursery inspiration mm -hmm. or whatever, I'm going to find some great nurseries in Momfluencer culture. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really seductive about supporting somebody financially by clicking on their links who you have a parasocial relationship with, like how many kids they have, if they've shared anything about their motherhood struggles, you know that like mm -hmm. you might struggle with the same things. And there's just something really powerful in wanting to consume from people you kind of sort of know. I had a thought. I mean, you're saying consume from people you know. Where did we used to get that information? Because I guess it's like, is it becoming like word of mouth, right? Or is that where then we get, oh, okay, I just heard about this new thing where it used to be maybe yeah. you'd be in well, literal social circles rather than right. virtual ones. Right. Of course, there were like catalogs that you could look at the J. Crew catalog and whatever, mm -hmm. lust after whatever J. Crew product you were lusting after. <laughs> but it didn't have that same draw of, oh, I like this person's take on, I don't know, preschool play-based learning. So like, mm -hmm. I'm more willing to be sucked into her promoting this snap dress or whatever. Like mm -hmm. the confluence between knowing at least something about this stranger mm -hmm. on the other side of your screen and consumerism is just really powerful, I think. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, also thinking if it's the new paparazzi, like I was thinking like back in the day, we'd read Us Weekly or yeah. People or whatever it was, right? And this is a new form of that, right? Yeah. Of different people who have a public persona and you only see what you see, what's been groomed. Right. And so in terms of the motherhood part of that, given that the ones that are most successful seem to fit a certain mold, like how in your work, what did that mean? What did you learn from that? I guess, because I'm curious about what that says about us as American mothers. Yeah. I mean, the Momfluencer called the Momfluencer sphere is a lot more diverse than one would think from, you know, mm -hmm. I think most people think of a Momfluencer, the typical Momfluencer as someone like who has a beach house in whatever Malibu has beachy blonde <laughs> waves and like all white everything. But there are a ton of momfluencers who can speak to so many different experiences of motherhood. You can find a momfluencer who is struggling with something super specific that you're struggling 
mm-hmm. with in terms of your own motherhood, you can probably find that momfluencer. And maybe she's sharing like resources or maybe she's advocating on behalf of an organization that's trying to advance maternal rights. There are a ton mm-hmm. of momfluencers that aren't just... And I don't want to denigrate the work of content creators because it's real work. I mean, they have to have editorial prowess. They're writing copy. They have to know what to do in front of a camera. They're basically editing their own mini magazines and it's a ton of work. But there's also momfluencers that are using their platforms for advocacy and social justice. And Mm -hmm. it's just a really varied world. And also the algorithm contributes to who Mm -hmm. we're seeing. If we only follow a certain subset of momfluencers, we're only going to be fed more of that same type of momfluencer. So, mm-hmm. so many people I interviewed for the book talked about the importance of really deliberately curating your feed. Hmm. So you're not just stuck in your own maternal echo chamber. Mm. I had this thought recently. I was speaking to someone and I have gone deep early on. I had three home births. I follow a lot of people who are midwives, who are doulas, who are very pro birth photography. Most of my feed is like, you have to click through because it's like, this may be explicit. It's a baby coming out of a woman's vagina and vulva, whatever. But I realized through that, all of a sudden I had this moment recently where again, I'm like, but I'm also only seeing like, I mean, and so to me, it's really normalized. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, well, like I think the pandemic did actually double home births, but like 2% of births, that's not what birth looks like. That's not what most women's experiences are of childbirth. Right. And I actually, because I personally don't have an experience of it and because I've curated my feed, if you will, because I'm interested in it, but I'm following yeah. it and then I'm getting recommendations to only see things like that. Yeah. You know, I only have a very particular window into what that looks like, I guess. And I think that's an interesting point, again, of just understanding how to check yourself or how to, so it feels really big and really like it has resonance to me. Mm -hmm. And then I'm realizing that like, it's this tiny narrow subset that probably just because I'm consuming that content a lot. Yeah. It's actually making me terrified when you think about all the other iterations of that from a social media perspective, right? Of whatever it looks like, whether it's gun rights or abortion on whatever side of that you're on and just the way that you could consume that content and then have such a myopic vision of the world as a whole because (laughs) interesting how that then, yeah, parlays into motherhood, obviously. Momfluencers on social media are pervasive in today's culture with focuses on everything from fashion to parenting philosophies to humor. It's interesting to see the impact of performative motherhood, both on practicing artists and mothers, how we present our private and public selves. And there's a lot to learn from Sarah's work, especially as it holds a mirror up to American motherhood in this particular socio-historical moment. One thing I was thinking about the monthlerancer culture is that on the one hand, in terms of the performativity. And then on the other hand, I'm like, shit, these women are living their lives and getting paid. Maybe it's a subversive way of I'm getting paid for the domestic late, right? Like if I'm sitting there looking cute, cooking my breakfast, mm-hmm. but I'm getting paid for it. Well, that's a, I don't know. I was like, wait, that's yeah. actually kind of smart. No, I mean, 100%. It's a win for women to be able to carve out their own jobs in 
a culture that really makes it hard for women to work outside the home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because they're not really getting paid for their domestic labor. They're getting Mm -hmm. paid for the painstaking labor of creating content, which is a different thing. Like nobody's Mm -hmm. paying Mm -hmm. them to put their kids down, read them eight stories. Nobody's paying them to make dinner. Nobody's paying them to clean. They're getting paid for creating content. But well, are they getting paid to publicize a product? Like I'm thinking of it almost like the 50s of like, look at my Dove soap. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? Like totally like a new mode of that. Yeah. Yeah. So they'll yeah. Yeah, get paid by individual companies to like create three sponsored posts about Mm -hmm. whatever gay and laundry detergent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's a total win for women to find any way to express themselves creatively and earn money in this type of marketplace, which forces so many women to divorce their motherhood from their professional selves. There need to be residencies that don't force caregivers to, you can't take your caregiving hat off and Mm -hmm. like put it aside. Mm -hmm. That's not doable for most people. And so it's inherently inequitable to have residencies, for example, that require a month away from your family, if that's (laughs) not something that like you can afford to do, that you're comfortable doing. So yeah. There are, and actually there are, to that point, there's one Actually, your child is just about of age. I don't want to assume anything about your family structure, but I think they have to be three and I forget what it's called. I think it's like Space Rider, right? It has this interesting name. Anyway, a friend of mine did it. She's a poet. I think the children have to be three years old and there's like a farm and they do like camp. The kids get to do something while you, and I think about them like, oh my gosh, like a summer camp style thing where like the kids, because you want to see them happy and fulfilled and know that they're safe and happy and fulfilled. And then that's for me, like where I feel the most space to create. But mm-hmm. it's like, my children are taken care of. They're okay. I can yeah. create. And that's the toughest balance. And there's just no resources for that. On the one hand, I feel like there's also people, and this is part of the reason why I started this podcast, was that I felt like early on when I was a very new mother, a lot of other creative people who were much older and had gone through this in their own ways had said, you'll come back to it. Don't worry. It's there then. Right. And I think that's what I always was pushing up against. Whereas you felt like you were pushing up against this ideal motherhood because that was what you had carried with you. Like for me, I felt like I've been pushing against, no, I can do this now Again, I can do this now because I have a partner who supports me because we had children much later in life. And so we had savings so that we had careers established. There's so many other levels of that. And I'm sure I do perform that on Instagram. I'm sure that it looks like, like you could look at it and say, oh, she's got it all figured out. If you were trying to replicate that, if you're not seeing all of the workings of it, you can't replicate it. And then that feeling of loss or failure because you're not Mm-hmm. replicating that you know mm-hmm. I'm also curious like this this comparative I think that's where our, the social media piece is really hard because just this idea of comparing what you have with anyone else's story and not seeing the struggle or not right. or only getting it presented in one particular way is really hard yeah it's I mean <sighs> motherhood makes us all so insecure and vulnerable as it is it's just an innately vulnerable experience that's just like rife for feeling bad about yourself or feeling unsure about your choices. We're just like onslaughted with so many people, most of them strangers that 
mm-hmm. we're just constantly consuming other people's renditions of motherhood. And it's, mm-hmm. it's dizzying in terms of feeling comfortable and solid with your own decisions. Yeah, especially when there is no foundation for motherhood. You're trying to like make those decisions or feel right. like, oh, mm-hmm. I even in terms of I know you mentioned and we didn't dig into like postpartum depression, but like that experience, I always thought had a very particular again, because of what's presented, even the term itself, right, that I didn't realize in myself, oh, that's what that looks like. There's a postpartum anxiety, like what? That's my thing. <laughs> I'm yeah. the anxious one. So like that way that it has materialized for me has looked very different than what I thought it looked like because of the way just just what's presented or what symptoms or what just the terms. That's its own subcategory of conversation. We should have a built-in understanding that the postpartum experience, regardless of whether or not you have a postpartum mm-hmm. mood disorder, mm-hmm. is going to be one of intense, sometimes excruciating transition. There's no mother that is going to avoid that. And that needs to be just part and parcel of it. We're going to teach you how to breastfeed and we're going to support you throughout these intense emotional changes. That needs to be more than if you find yourself experiencing the baby blues, that is not helpful. When you start sobbing in the middle of the night because you're exhausted, when you start thinking, is this all I am, a supplier of milk and a changer of diapers? When you start resenting your partner for getting to leave the house while you're stuck at home, like tied to a breast pump, when this happens, here's how we'll help. Not if you experience the baby blues, like fuck that. Mm -hmm. I have so much rage for the term baby blues. Like, Well, like you said, though, I also think that postpartum, I have yet to meet anyone who didn't experience something in some range, in some iteration, or that it looks one particular way. Like when you say blues, I didn't have that. I had massive amounts of catastrophic thinking that are paralyzing, right? And also that this rage is fine. I also get pissed off that like we're raising children to be like, you can have whatever emotion you want, but then mothers aren't allowed, like parents or father, whoever, like we all like, why do we hold all, oh, then let's also talk about, I also have problems with holding children to different standards than we hold adults to. We're all super mean to each other. Look at all the things that are happening now. And yet children aren't allowed to have feelings or say things or say, I hate you, mom. It's like, Mm -hmm. don't say that. And like, meanwhile, I'm like screaming at my husband. Like if we were able to hold that, yes, that also though, in terms of what you're saying and support, I do have to say that again, and this was my privilege of going into this in this way, having had midwifery support, it is a totally different, like you saying that I didn't have... I had someone like rubbing my feet tenderly, like day one, yeah. day three, checking on me, like my first midwife being like, that latch isn't right. That, and she was a little tough, but it was like tough love, nice, tough love that was like, if you want to do this, this is how you're going to do it. Right. And like it was supportive though. Yes. Yeah. I felt yeah. so taken care of. And when I tell so many women that, it's like, what? And I had parallel care, so I get it. I also had like OBs. They didn't even ask. Like I gave birth. They weren't even like, did you give birth? I just fell out of the system. Literally, I disappeared. And no one, did anyone care? They didn't know that I did. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was mind blowing too. I'm like, I had had an OB. I never gave birth with them. Were they going to check in on me? Did I die? (laughs) Like, does anyone care? Hello. So my two questions for you, and ideally if you could answer, not necessarily in a word, but like a sentence, just one of those like, creative what do they call it in 
acting, like the improv sort of like, mm-hmm. go, like I right. go do this. <laughs> the questions are, what is postpartum? Mm. Go. Blood, healing, rest, quiet, transition, <laughs> leaking fluids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. The couch. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so that's like all of motherhood. <laughs> right. Like all of it. <laughs> like leaking fluids happens for a while oh my god a lot of meals that you did not cook that's in there oh yeah i like that oh meals that you did not cook that feels so nice why is that like that anyway and then the other question is what is creativity since this is what we talk about here too getting lost in deep creative work where I feel like when I'm so deep in a thought process or an idea that I'm not even conscious of like the synapses firing, I'm just in a pure state of, it's so hard to describe. It's just that deep, completely embodied, completely focused state where it doesn't feel like laborious work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, where it's not work. It's like happening out on your own or it's coming from Yeah, and like most of it yeah. most of it for me is laborious work. So when you hit that <laughs> sweet spot of all the laborious work that you did, just oh, it's all there and like all of a sudden I'm like channeling all of that into something that feels like it's surprising me in that very moment. We're so grateful, Sarah, for sharing your story with us and your academically interesting analyses of momfluencer culture. I know that I, for one, feel like I learned a lot, and I'm now going to have to avoid going down a rabbit hole about Ballerina Farm. Sarah came to her writing about motherhood after becoming a mother herself, and I found it fascinating that being a mother drove her to write a book about cultural representations of motherhood, and that she's able to sit at the intersection of living and breathing motherhood on a daily basis and this constant production of motherhood content. I'm grateful for the mirror Sarah holds up for all of us to continue to question our own perceptions of motherhood, our public personas, and performance. You can find Sarah's work at Sarah, S-A-R-A-Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.com, where you can also find out more about her upcoming book, Momfluenced. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com. Follow us on Instagram at postpartumproductionpodcast and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here.